0: Hello, I'm Tom Melville. Welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode we bring you people, places and perspectives from beyond the big cities. It's broadly accepted that pre-colonial Australia was wild and untamed, and that its population was a largely itinerant hunter-gatherer society, entirely subject to the whims of nature, and that agriculture was introduced by Europeans. There's a growing body of evidence that this was not the case – and that First Nations Australians actually cultivated the land for thousands of years, a relationship upended by colonisation. Fast forward two and a half centuries, agriculture has largely been left to the descendants of Europeans, with little space for Aboriginal Australians.
1: There you go. Um, I bought milk. I don't have sugar, though. That's right.
0: But with land degradation and climate change ramping up... There's a growing movement to include Indigenous people in the next chapters of Australia's agricultural history.
1: Yeah, so welcome along. This is the southernmost point of Jar country. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Lovely red volcanic basalt soil. This site is to see what kangaroo grass does when it's given luxurious conditions. Okay. So great soil, high rainfall and we also add irrigation if we need to.
0: Latani McDonald is tall. Her weather-beaten akubra tells of a life spent outdoors, a life in the bush. She's an agroecologist specialising in biodiversity. We're on Dja, Dja country in central Victoria at one of two kangaroo grass research sites.
1: So I wanted to take you to the top first. This is our kangaroo grass cropping, and we've got our research started last year and will be sort of taking over the rest of the paddock this coming year. Yep. We're comparing what we call ecotypes or biotypes.
0: It's a hot day south of Bendigo. Tall stands of kangaroo grass dance in the breeze. The grass comes up to my shoulder, fat seeds bending stalks back towards the earth. The paddock, about a hectare, is on a gentle slope There are rows of kangaroo grass with different labels. They're being grown in different conditions, more or less water, some from tube stock, some from seeds. The soft shimmer of grass stalks in the wind is a classic rural scene, one replicated in paddocks across the country. But it's actually cutting-edge science here.
1: As you know, it's perennial. You don't have to sow it every year like wheat. You plant it. It's there for a good 10 years of productive life, and we're going to look at methods to how to stimulate its production to keep it there even longer. So it's a far cry from farmers out there every year on the tractor sowing wheat. If we can create a cropping system like that, I think a lot of farmers will enjoy a break (laughs) as well.
0: The Jar Jar Wurrung clan's Aboriginal corporation received a $1.8 million grant from the federal government to work out a cropping system for kangaroo grass. The corporation's commercial arm, Jandak, wants to market that to farmers, providing opportunities to other groups to apply it all over the country. They're in charge of the program with involvement from La Trobe University.
1: Yeah, there's so much to native grasses, and this one gets called the trickiest one of all, kangaroo grass.
0: Kangaroo grass can be found across the country, so the species is adapted for all sorts of conditions. It's a wild grass, and compared to a staple crop like wheat, it still has a huge amount of variability.
1: It's really well adapted to every possible climate scenario you could throw at it so it can seed twice a year if it wants to the seed can germinate anywhere from within a week to seven years have a high dormancy in some seed types the grain size varies hugely how much seed and yield a plant puts up can vary tremendously so the way i put it we're starting with wheat when wheat was just a grass so we're starting from scratch. So that's,
0: a, yeah. that's that kind of variability. That's a headache for a farmer who, want, who, who wants consistency, I guess, right?
1: We want it to be its natural self, the plant, but we're just trying to make it so it can be a modernized crop.
0: Kangaroo grass is a grain. the Jaja Warrong would have ground into a flour to make dough. It's prolific all over the country, but was actually difficult to find in Jajawarong country.
1: It's almost a rare plant because it's confined to roadsides and very vulnerable. Like people can just spray or slash the roadside or cultivate for a fire break, and that takes the plant out. And in our search for kangaroo grass across 150 square kilometres of Jarjarong country, then there's so fewer remnants. And so it's vital that we really bring this plant back to life across the landscape where it was once prolific. You know, that's a real healing process.
0: Latani is trying to figure out the best way to grow the grass. The thinking is that as it's a native grass, it requires a lot less water and human intervention than introduced species do. It's meant to be here, which Latani hopes will make it easier to farm.
1: It's lived through every drought Australia's thrown at it for tens of thousands of years, and here it is. It's like you almost should have a statue to it, you know, all these native plants. This
0: almost almost is a statue to it.
1: Very statuesque, yeah. And so we really need to look to all our native plants and see what uses do we have for them and how can we involve the local Aboriginal people in the area you're in, to be the centre and the driver for those, so we're not dispossessing again, that's what I've, probably the biggest thing that I've really learnt and that's instilled within me now, is that real drive to support that journey.
0: There are lots of reasons this project in central Victoria is so important. For Rodney Carter, CEO of the Dja Wurrung clan's Aboriginal Corporation, it's part of the healing process. He's a good-natured man with an easy laugh and a smile which never leaves his eyes. Rodney says it's about creating healthy country and healthy people.
2: How do you measure success? So for us to see kangaroo grass across altered landscapes is a, a massive positive for us as people to see, to visualise the colours and then to be able to use farming systems to make that efficient and commercially viable for people to enjoy the product itself. So I think what drives us is, you know, for cultural reasons, I think that's really important, gives us a good foundation, and then the job's on, It's like and that's part of, you know, this project.
0: There are countless examples around Australia of pre-colonial First Nations people working hard, in historian Bruce gamages words, to make plants and animals abundant, convenient and predictable. Fire was applied to the landscape in a controlled manner. Plants were cultivated for food and in such a way as to encourage growth and attract animals. Australia was, Gamage called it, the biggest estate on earth. These were systems developed over thousands of years in harmony with the land. But with the arrival of Europeans, that thread to the past was cut, and those gentle and pleasant parklands early European explorers described were lost. First Nations people have been involved with Western-style agriculture on this continent almost since the beginning, and in all manner of ways. But in terms of owning land and profiting from it, they remain underrepresented. Has it rained? Did it rained on the way up. Uh,
3: not, not here. Like,
0: Josh Gilbert is a Worremy man from the Gloucester region of New South Wales, a couple of hours north of Newcastle.
3: And you don't dairy anymore? That, no, my grandfather...
0: His family had been farming cattle near Nabiak for generations. He tells me how his ancestors were dispossessed of their land and then became farmers themselves.
3: What river is this? This is the Willambo River. Um, So this flows into the oceans at Foster. It's a brackish water, so fresh water further up with platypus and other incredible creatures and flows down through here into you know saltwater country. So for me, this is a perfect blend of fresh and salt, which is pretty incredible.
0: He takes me on a walk around his property. Over the generations, the land has been split up amongst the family, although many of his neighbours are still Gilbert's. Josh has European ancestors, convicts who were granted sheep farming land here in 1825. In the early days, Josh's Warramai ancestors raided that property and injured the shepherd, but his two cultures later came together.
3: They have a few, two children, and the daughter, Mary Bug, a pretty strong Aboriginal lady, gets told she has to learn or white ways to be an asset to the company, gets packed up, sent to boarding school and comes back, uses her Indigenous knowledge and her newly found white knowledge to um, marry a bushranger, Captain Thunderbolt. So he a, was a bushranger up along this area. Known as quite a gentle bushranger, would pull people up, take their money, give them some back and, and go off on his merry way. But Mary Ann using her Indigenous and non-Indigenous knowledge was really the brains of the outfit. And she could listen to the ground and hear horses galloping from miles away, was able to read and write as well, so it became quite an asset to him. and That's where our, um, our Indigenous heritage met white culture and um, has been used to really be the foundation of uh, both principles coming together. Josh
0: is 29, so he's a rarity for a few reasons. The age of farmers is increasing across the board and Indigenous people are underrepresented in broad areas of Australian society, including agriculture. We sit down on his deck overlooking bright green pasture in parts over a metre tall. This was dry and dusty a couple of years ago, but after some good seasons the landscape has been transformed. He tells me it's been a particularly good one for his beehives. I ask him what the term Indigenous agriculture means to him.
3: There isn't an overarching definition of Indigenous agriculture in Australia, but essentially I see it in two streams. There is a pre-colonial phase that is before colonisation and that looks at bush foods and growing native food. And that has been adapted over time. It's kind of a a processed farming method that's been refined over 60,000 years and is still practised today. On the other side of that is a post-colonial phase of where our mob were engaged in Western agricultural systems. So cattle, sheep, you know, a range of other, broadacre farming as well. So we're, we're engaged in that sector as well. And we have a, our own narrative there. So for me, Indigenous agribusiness looks at both of those and also actually broadens up into what the future of agriculture might be as well. So we have Blackfellas talking about making um, fake meat or processed meat. It kind of spans that whole length.
0: Josh works for Cooper in their Indigenous Consulting Unit. A few years ago they released a report into the Kakadu Plum, a fruit native to the top end. There's a huge amount of potential for cultivation. Josh sees it as Australia's native superfood.
3: It's a very small product that has the highest vitamin C content of any natural plant in the world and it also has all these other f- incredible properties that are still being investigated by scientists really so it's got really strong cultural application but also kind of strong as a medicinal plant and the fact of science kind of reaffirming what indigenous people already knew that this is a really great cracking product we use that as a case study to look at what the future business models might be
0: josh identified six and a half thousand species native to australia that could be cultivated like the kakadu plum but also kangaroo grass, yam daisies, dancing grass and all sorts of tubers, fruits, nuts, grasses and herbs. And Josh wants to ensure these new crops are cultivated ethically and responsibly with clear benefits to Indigenous people, which hasn't always happened in the past.
3: It's kind of incredible really to say that there's 6,500 different native foods. The ones that people might be able to relate more to that have been commercialised, the macadamia is kind of the perfect case study of what goes wrong when somebody takes indigenous knowledge, indigenous plants, and takes them overseas. And some of the more common examples in Australia that's been commercialised here, mostly by non-indigenous people actually, you know, things like finger limes and lemon myrtle. Macadamia
0: nuts are a hugely popular native Australian food and are an important agricultural product. They're one of only a handful of foods native to Australia that are traded internationally, but First Nations people barely see any of the profits. Unfortunately, that's reflected across the board.
3: If we have a look at the bush food space, for instance, an area in which I've done a fair bit of work. We know of all the opportunity of native food farming across Australia, indigenous people only make up 1% of the farmers in that space. They only receive 1% of the benefit. That's pretty, that's pretty shocking. Yeah, it, it's terrible. So certainly in certain parts of native foods, there's more representation than that, which there certainly should be. But when you actually look at the amount of money that's coming in to the native food space, that disproportionately, 99%, goes to white farmers. That's because of a range of different things. In my eyes, it's because of the way in which white people can engage in kind of a broader marketplace and access to capital.
0: Josh's goal is to develop an Indigenous certification, something producers can put on their products which let consumers know that it's been produced by an Indigenous farmer and that the profits are going to Indigenous people. That'll help make sure there are viable employment pathways in the industry for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and that it's being led by the traditional owners themselves.
3: So it's not uncommon for a non-Indigenous farmer to say, oh, I want to get into the kakadu plum game. I can get X number of millions of dollars from the bank. I'm going to plant 20,000 trees, and all of a sudden they're the biggest producer in that space. It's not surprising, but It is really heartbreaking that our mob, our cultural IP, all the knowledge that's kind of built up into these products has been taken.
0: Black Duck Foods is the commercial arm of historian and novelist Bruce Pascoe's farm in Mallacoota on the Victorian border with New South Wales. Bruce's best-selling book, Dark Emu, explores Indigenous agriculture, engineering and construction over the millennia. The 2014 book helped dispel the myth that cultivation of Australia's landscape only began a couple of hundred years ago.
4: Uh, Chris Andrew, I'm the General Manager at Black Duck Foods Limited, which is a new social enterprise looking at bringing back traditional agricultural practices and helping encourage greater Indigenous economic development.
0: Chris and I meet on Gadigal country in the suburb of Redfern in inner city Sydney. The bustling streets of a humming metropolis are a world apart from the quiet sea of dancing grass on Bruce Pascoe's farm, where Chris spends a lot of his time. Chris says part of the goal is to heal country, but it goes deeper than that.
4: By healing country, by reinstating traditional agricultural practices, we're restoring a lot of the damage over the last 250 years. That damage manifests itself not only in things like the soil and the invasive species, but the damage done to people. The loss of culture, loss of connection to culture, the loss of continuity, the racism, that trauma over a number of generations builds up and part of re-engaging the validity of somebody's culture back on a farm and making it core to what we do and creating a safe space plays out every day on the farm.
0: At this early stage, Black Duck Foods hasn't produced anything on a commercial scale. They've largely worked on a small scale just to see what's possible, but their goals are ambitious.
4: The opportunity is to look at how do we replace 5% of the wheat market with native grains. And similarly on the tuber side, there's plenty of opportunities to extend those into the food market. It's Because this whole endeavor is about not only building the breadth of coverage but the vertical stack of opportunities in employment, not only the farm person, but the baker, the miller, the graphic designer, the accountant, they can all be involved in the whole food story, job story from an indigenous employment perspective. So these are durable employment outcomes that can stay regional. And so how do we retain jobs on country? How do we create regional economic development around a history and a culture that's the world's oldest living one. and So this is an opportunity for everybody to participate in a lot of ways.
0: Bruce Pascoe's book argued that the style of agriculture practised in much of Australia today just isn't suited to the landscape. Introduce livestock, compact and erode the soil, and require a huge amount of water, while the crops are far less drought-resistant than natives. Chris says healing the harm we've done to the country and even combating climate change are important aspects of Indigenous agriculture today.
4: You've got a food system that's lasted 65,000-plus years. It's client-resilient because it's been through different changes, and this is the opportunity. We've got systems where you've got perennial grasses. They absorb more carbon. They've got longer-rooted. They're better for healing the soil that we've lost. 200 years ago, we had soil that was a metre deep. Now we think we can grow food on porcelain. So these are systems that not only produce food, They heal country, they heal the soils, they sequester carbon, they build resilience to drought, they build an opportunity to engage in the fire story. So in terms of building resilient systems for our food system, putting things that have lasted 65,000 years back in the soil makes an awful lot of sense.
0: That's something Josh Gilbert is conscious of too. For Josh, Indigenous agriculture is as much about having a positive, regenerative relationship with the landscape as it is a set of crops or techniques. He points to evidence from around the world that Indigenous custodians preserve more diverse landscapes. He says 80% of the world's biodiversity is in Indigenous-owned land.
3: You know, it, it might all seem fun and games, but Indigenous people who you know are, are the true custodians of the land generally across the world are the holders of that 80 percent of biodiversity and that's a really incredible kind of statistic to start from. When you combine that on the farm level just the idea of sustainability is so different where farmers are putting 10 years sustainability farm practices in or trying to plant trees to band-aid and patch up the environment we're thinking what's the next 60,000 years look like what does a connection for a warren my person even in the next 200, 300 years, look like on this place, and that it will certainly be done best by Indigenous people who have got 60,000 plus years of knowledge kind of pushing us along to try and work out what the next 60,000 plus years is. Chris
0: believes that underrepresentation of Indigenous people in agriculture is part of a wider systemic issue in Australian society.
4: I mean, we've got underrepresentation of Indigenous people in Australia, full stop, across everything. We're a racist country. I'm not talking on behalf of Indigenous people because I'm non-Indigenous. I'm talking on half of white whitefellas saying, white fellas we're racist. So the barriers to entry in all sector is because we're fundamentally racist. And whether we like to swallow that pill or not, that's a true fact. And, and when it comes from the top that um, we deny history, we don't speak truth in anything. So there's about acknowledging that it's not an Indigenous problem, it's a white fella problem and white fellows have got to change the way we operate. And we can't keep forcing indigenous people into a white construct. We've actually got to allow them to operate within an indigenous construct, and we get invited into that space.
0: You mentioned that we've got 250 years of, I guess, entrenched ways of doing things. The way to break through that or break beyond that,
4: does that require policy level change from the top, or is grassroots going to cut it? It does require change at a policy level, change at a corporate level, at a societal level and at a grassroots community individual level. So all these actions combine and at policy level it often takes time out to reflect upon the the good intents of some policies but the perverse outcomes that come from setting policy within a non-Indigenous framework about what those policies mean within an Indigenous framework. And they're completely different things. because. We might well set laws and that work well within a Western system, but that's not an Indigenous system.
0: There is movement at a policy level. For one, the Victorian Federation of Traditional Owner Corporations, alongside the Victorian Government, is about to announce a strategy to encourage the growth of the bush food sector and to make sure First Nations people are leading it.
4: So there's got to be greater policy education and policy thought in terms of the implications this has within a cultural framework. There is some progress and I'm heartened at some of the engagement that we've had at certain areas and senior levels of some of these sorts of discussions. So whilst we might be at a small organisation, we seem to be having a big voice, which is powerful.
0: I'm back on jaja warung Country with Rodney book Carter book and Latani MacDonald.
2: I just took some photos of it. Oh. I was wondering if that was the caterpillar might have been, but... Um, a purple
1: butterfly.
2: Yeah, when its wings are open, but when it lands, yeah, they're almost straight like a moth. Yeah. and it went white and speckled.
0: As we speak, okay. Rodney rummages around the kangaroo grass tussocks, pulling out insects and showing them to me, spotting moths and caterpillars. It's clearly satisfying for him to be in charge of a program like this, one which is fully Aboriginal-led, restoring the landscape and providing opportunities to Indigenous people. I asked Rodney about the insects and about some of the other grasses that grow along the kangaroo grass stands. I wonder if in a
2: European-style farm, the farmer would tolerate that. I don't think it is that cut and dry. I think what's happened with farmers, people of land, there is an element of almost uh, spiritual to connect, to be with soils, to grow something. Maybe... And there's always an economic imperative around stuff. You can't do this and not make money and definitely can't lose money. So agriculture's probably been subject to pressures that consumers have placed upon the person of the land to make this profitable. You know, and a real simplistic argument is, as consumers, if we were prepared to pay a price that afforded the respect of the land, then the farmer could farm to the best of their ability around what I would think the environment needs. So, you know, it's a victim of our own success, but I think going back to an ancient grain and us now looking at variation agriculture, we're onto something new that's very old.
0: Latani says ancestral knowledge is an important part of the project.
1: I know early on we were laughing at how the use of words like inventing a cropping system and... Um, the potential of a cropping system. And if you really think about that phrasing, it's assuming this has not been done before. And that's the Australian mindset shift that we have to look at, that this has been done before. We're just trying to slow down, take a breath, and acknowledge that this has been done before and we need to bring this back to life and acknowledge that the Aboriginal ancestors have a big part to play in being acknowledged for this planet.
0: Relearning a lot of knowledge that was lost.
1: Yeah, I think if we look at the way we challenge our assumptions in how we talk about things... I think all of us can have the best intentions, but when we start looking at the words we use, there's a lot of room for improvement. Having our Aboriginal groups lead the way and be the centre point and the anchor point for partnerships and commercialisation, I think it's really essential. And if we don't do that, we're just taking away again.
0: But on the commercial side of things, Rodney tells me that there's already been a huge amount of interest from wholesalers trying to get the grain for a variety of purposes. His focus right now, though, is doing things properly to build.
2: What's happening nationally, there's a lot of interest, a lot of goodwill, a lot of experiments, but it's very fractured. The purpose of what we're doing is to try and get the system sorted so we can command the property rights, the transferability of the the system, but so others can enjoy it. And and if we weren't doing this, it'd be a jigsaw. You know, I don't know how long.
0: Is the plan to commercialise that for the corporation's financial gain, I guess?
2: Yeah, yeah. So not to be seen in delivering on the package or the system that it shouldn't be profitable. And I would say in a commercial context... It has to be profitable or other people aren't going to want to do this themselves so with greater profit and that appropriately applied, you'll expand upon research, projects, take informed risks yourself to do other things because this is the tip of the iceberg, there's so many native plants that we're yet to really understand.
0: The utopic end goal would be a varied Australian landscape supported by hundreds of different native crops growing in harmony with each other and the land. Instead of homogenising the environment, we'd be working with the landscape for its benefit and ours.
2: Imagine landscape just covered, again, in paddock structures potentially, because this is how landscape's been altered, but having mosaics of all these different types of species that will attract certain insects and birds and animals because of that nature. And maybe down the track is, you know, I, I think we'd refer to it as idealistic, that you'll have integrated systems. But we can't at the moment be caught up in that utopian dream. I think, you know, you get some of this foundation right, show it's achievable, and then just keep doing.
0: Despite the hard scientific methods the judge clan's Aboriginal Corporation's commercial arm is employing, There is a large cultural aspect to the program too. Rodney is conscious of the weight of history, of picking up the thread lost when his ancestors were dispossessed of their land.
2: History is written by the powerful, (laughs) and I don't always feel very powerful. Increasingly I feel positive in being able to be constructively influential. History is what it is. What's truthful in terms of my Understanding, experience, knowledge of my people's history that at contact, it's safe to say was the most traumatic period in time for my people's presence in this landscape for Wurung for around 40,000 years. And what we do with projects like this is extremely healing. It's healing to my people when they see the achievements. They mightn't be in the paddock or directly involved, but when they're allowed to come out and see and talk about it it's immeasurable the wellness it creates that's
0: rodney carter there ceo of the Jaja wurung clan's aboriginal corporation he's feeling positive about the future of agriculture and his people's role in it that's it for this episode of voice of real australia thank you so much for listening Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Australia. Follow me on Twitter at TomMelville124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Our intern is Ethan Hamilton. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. This is an ACM podcast.